Robbery is defined as the act of taking property unlawfully from a person or place by force or threat of force. The definition of terrorism is the unlawful use of violence and intimidation, especially against civilians in the pursuit of political aims. Those two things are very different. It kind of goes without saying. The reason I point it out is because for one group of people in the 1980s, those two acts weren't so clearly defined. This organization of rebels and revolutionaries was known as Weather Underground. Years before the September 11th terrorist attacks of 2001, the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, and the ISIS uprising in the Middle East, there were the Weathermen, a co-ed group of robbers and bombers in the United States whose radical ideology was birthed during the anti-war movement of the 1960s. In the late 60s and 70s, the group splintered off into different factions, and each had their own goals and varying levels of extremism. Weather Underground was split into two main veins, the pacifists and the destroyers. This schism caused a lot of infighting, and by 1977, the organization had, for the most part, dissolved with the exception of a few small subgroups that linked arms with the Black Liberation Army, a spin-off of the Black Panther Party. BLA and Weather Underground factions publicly stated that their goals were to achieve long-term political and racial reform in America. They often carried these ideals out through acts of violence. In 1981, members of both groups collaborated in one of the most violent and deadly robberies in New York history, leaving in their wake three dead bodies in a fear of domestic terrorism that America had never experienced before. This is Armored, the untold stories of murder, mayhem, and million-dollar heists. Today's episode takes place in southern New York near the New Jersey border where an armored truck heist aimed at swiping stacks of bills turned into catastrophic bloodshed. Tuesday, October 20th, 1981, three guards were inside of a Brinks armored vehicle on its way to deliver and pick up cash from banks and businesses throughout Rockland County, New York. Behind the steering wheel was 48-year-old James Kelly. In the passenger seat was 48-year-old Joseph Trombino, the courier, and in the back was the trio's additional muscle, 49-year-old Peter Page. Peter often accompanied Joseph in and out of deliveries to ensure that his partner and the money bags were protected at all times. James, the driver, was supposed to remain inside the truck. According to Crime Library, by mid-afternoon, the men had been on their shift for several hours and had already collected several hundred dollars in cash from banks in the region. But they had one final stop to make before heading to the Brinks Truck Depot and clocking out for the day. The New York Times reported that the truck was scheduled to pick up its largest payload of approximately $1.6 million that afternoon from the Nanuit Mall in Nanuit, New York. That stop was roughly 30 miles north of Manhattan. Shortly before 4 p.m., the truck pulled off of Route 59, a fairly busy highway that runs east to west through Rockland County and made its way into the mall parking lot. After a minute or two of winding between the rows of parking spaces, James steered the truck right up to an entrance where the mall offices were located. James parked the truck and Peter and Joseph got out with a dolly in hand to go pick up the money. 
A few minutes later, the pair reemerged, hauling six canvas money bags piled high on the cart. When they got into the back of their armored truck, they quickly started loading the cash into cages in the back while James stayed put in the driver's seat. According to the New York Times, Peter and Joseph were almost finished loading up the last few money bags when out of nowhere, a red Chevy van sped up to the back of the truck and came to a screeching halt. Peter and Joseph stood stunned as the van's back door swung open. And at least four men wearing ski masks and carrying handguns, shotguns, and automatic rifles jumped out. Peter and Joseph had very little time to react. Within seconds, the group of masked assailants fired their guns at the two guards. The New York Times reported that Joseph was able to unholster his service weapon and fire off a shot before being hit in the shoulder and falling to the ground. His injury was reported as being so horrific that his arm was nearly torn off his body. Unfortunately, Peter was shot several times in the neck, arm, and chest and never got the chance to fight back. He died on the scene right there in the mall's asphalt parking lot. James, who was still up in the front of the truck, realized what was happening. But like his colleagues, he had no time to respond either. As soon as shots rang out, one of the suspects jumped on the hood and began blasting shotgun rounds directly at James through the bulletproof plate glass windshield. According to Crime Library's piece on this case, James was able to duck down and avoid being hit by shrapnel that made its way through the bulletproof glass, but the other big problem he was faced with was the fact that he was pinned in. With Peter dead, Joseph critically injured, and James neutralized in the front cab, the thieves helped themselves to the cash in the back of the armored truck and then took off. News reports state that the entire shootout and robbery occurred in less than two minutes. According to the New York Times, police were called to the scene and arrived shortly after the robbers took off. Police found Peter dead on the ground and both Joseph and James suffering from serious injuries. Authorities rushed both survivors off in ambulances and thankfully they survived. Joseph was reported to have barely clung to life and underwent several reconstructive surgeries on his arm. James was treated for several large cuts and gashes to his head and face from the shards of glass that had pelted him during the attack on the truck's windshield. While law enforcement waited to get official statements from the two surviving guards, they immediately began interviewing witnesses who'd been near the area of the mall parking lot where the attack happened. One witness who'd been coming out of the mall told police that they saw the armed robbers drive off onto Route 59 in a red Chevy van. Another reported seeing that same red van turn into the mall behind the armored truck just seconds after it entered the mall parking lot. This witness said the van had plastic lining the inside of its windows. When they spotted it, it was trailing the Brinks truck for a few seconds and then fell back and ended up parking near the far end of the mall's parking lot by itself. Another witness who was living in a house not far down the road called 911 just minutes after the robbery to report that they'd seen a group of people park and abandon a red Chevy van in the parking lot of a department store near the mall. This witness said the group seemed suspicious because they were wearing masks and moving several large bags into two other vehicles. The witness described those two cars as a yellow Honda sedan and a U-Haul moving truck. Investigators immediately put out an all-points bulletin for law enforcement across New York and New Jersey to be on the lookout for those two vehicles. The APB was accompanied by a stern warning reminding officers that the suspects were armed and incredibly dangerous. According to the New York Times, more than 100 officers from Rockland County and neighboring precincts converged on nearby roadways and set up roadblocks along major traffic arteries in the area. 
the highest priority was buttoning down on cars that were traveling to or away from the Tappan Zee Bridge, which crossed the nearby Hudson River. Within a half hour of the robbery, four police officers from the Nyack Police Department spotted a U-Haul on Route 59 that sort of matched the APB Nanuit police had issued heading towards the bridge. For reference, Nyack is about five miles east of Nanuit. The officers' names who saw the moving truck were Edward O'Grady, Arthur Keenan, Brian Lennon, and Waverly Brown. After studying the vehicle more closely, officers called its description into their dispatch and asked if they should pull it over. According to news reports, in between the time it took for Central Dispatch to contact Nanuit authorities and grant the officers' request to pull the U-Haul over, the four officers made the decision on their own to flip on their lights and sirens and pull the truck over. As they approached the U-Haul, they saw a white man and woman sitting in the front cab. A white couple didn't match the description that had gone out for the APB, so the four officers weren't feeling too nervous as they walked up to it. I have to imagine, like most cops, it crossed their minds that this vehicle could be the one everybody was looking for. But based on their initial assessment of the occupants, it just didn't fit the bill. But it couldn't have been more wrong. Nyack police officers Edward O'Grady, Arthur Keenan, Brian Lennon, and Waverly Brown knew, based on the description of the man and woman sitting inside a U-Haul on Route 59 in New York, that they probably had pulled over the wrong vehicle. And they figured it was a slim chance they actually had the U-Haul that the law enforcement agencies everywhere were looking for regarding the Brinks truck robbery at Nanuit Mall less than an hour before. But just to be sure, they decided to talk to the occupants anyway. Taking extra precaution, the officers had their guns unholstered as they summoned the couple from the cab. As instructed, the man and woman inside stepped out and according to the New York Times, at the sight of the officers' firearms, the woman immediately started pleading and waving her arms, begging the men to lower their weapons. After a minute or so of talking to the couple and hearing their story that they were just moving and not involved in any robbery, three of the officers were prepared to let the U-Haul go. But. Officer Arthur Keenan wanted to be extra sure, so he took a closer look at the rear of the truck. News reports state he went around to the back to see if the pair's story about moving really held up. He wanted them to open the back hatch and let him and his fellow officers take a peek. According to Crime Library, Arthur was frustratingly unable to lift the back door. It wouldn't budge. And the New York Times reported that as he started to walk away, the U-Haul's back door suddenly rolled up from the inside and three masked people jumped out and sprayed bullets in the direction of the four officers. Waverly Brown took the first hit. Reports state Brian and Arthur took cover behind a nearby tree and car and were unscathed. Officer Edward O'Grady was able to empty the magazine of his service pistol in the direction of his attackers and injured at least one of them. But sadly, one of the gunmen toting an automatic rifle fatally shot him in the back. Just a few minutes after the shooting started, Waverly and Edward died on scene and the masked assailants sped off. But when the coast was clear, Brian and Arthur called in the shooting from their patrol car radios. While they waited for help to arrive, they tried to resuscitate their colleagues, but it was useless. Edward and Waverly were gone. During the chaos of the blitz attack, the white man and woman who'd been in the cab of the U-Haul had scattered and were nowhere to be found. Now, ordinarily, you'd assume they'd just got back in the U-Haul and left with their co-conspirators. But that's not what happened. According to CBS News, an off-duty Nyack corrections officer who'd been by the shootout scene seconds after it happened spotted a woman walking on the side of Route 59. 
He told reporters that the woman ran up to him and screamed, quote, I didn't shoot him, he did, end quote. As a precaution, the off-duty officer detained the woman for further questioning. When investigators looking into the Brinks armored truck robbery arrived on scene, Arthur and Brian explained that after the shootout, they'd seen some of the suspects hijack a passing car, and the rest of them took off in the U-Haul and a Buick Oldsmobile. The vehicle Arthur and Brian believed the robbers hijacked was a BMW sedan. Arthur and Brian said that it was unlikely the robbers who'd fled in the U-Haul would get very far because it had been riddled with bullets and the engine block was smoking when they'd taken off. At that point, another all-points bulletin went out alerting area law enforcement to be on the lookout for the BMW and the Buick Oldsmobile along with the U-Haul and the yellow Honda. Almost as soon as that message hit police radios, patrol officers a few miles down Route 59 discovered a bullet-riddled abandoned U-Haul ditched on the side of the road. In the back were a few Brinks money bags with cash still in them. Around the same time, reports state that a lone police officer further up the road spotted the Honda, BMW, and Buick driving in traffic. The patrolman gave chase, but he was all alone and only able to successfully pursue one of the three suspect vehicles. When a decision had to be made, he chose to go for the Honda. The BMW and Buick got away. Occupants inside the Honda weren't so lucky. The driver of that car ended up crashing into a concrete wall after trying to make a tight turn to avoid the cop. A Crime Library article on this case states that the officer was able to pin the fugitives in. While he was alone for the first few minutes waiting for backup to arrive, he noticed three people badly injured inside the wrecked car. The passengers were a white man, a white woman, and a black man. At one point, one of the men crawled into the back seat and pleaded with the officer to help him. Unsure if he was being played, the patrolman stayed at arm's length and waited for backup. When other units showed up, the three people in the Honda were arrested. Inside the car's trunk, police found the rest of the missing Brinks money bags. Also sitting in the back seat was a handgun, fully loaded and ready to fire. So, that officer's instinct not to aid the man crying for help in the back seat had been a smart move after all. In the aftermath of the day's events, there were three innocent men dead and four suspects in custody, which included the three perps from the Honda and the woman picked up walking on the side of the road. The rest of the robbers had escaped. The only good news was that all of the stolen money was accounted for. In the wake of the robbery and police shootout, everyone in southern New York mourned the loss of the police officers and Brinks guards who'd literally been murdered for nothing. The New York Times reported that slain guard Peter Page was a father of three who'd been married to his wife Josephine for a long time. Together, the couple's children were between the ages of 9 and 19. Peter was a Navy veteran who'd first started working for Brinks in 1956. He'd gone his entire 25-year-long career never being involved in a robbery. Officer Waverly Brown was known throughout town by his nickname, Chipper. He was a U.S. Air Force veteran who was a father of two daughters. The Nyack News and Views reported that Waverly had been a police officer for more than a decade and was the only black officer on the force at the time. Edward O'Grady was a Marine Corps veteran from Nyack who joined the police force right after he'd returned from serving in the Vietnam War. At the time of his death, Edward was a married father of three young children and had been taking classes part-time to earn a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. Determined to honor these men's lives and find and arrest all of their killers, police in Nanuit launched a massive investigation that roped in help from the state police and the FBI. Because the nature of the crimes had been so violent and stretched out over three separate crime scenes, authorities knew they had a lot of ground to cover. 
For days, teams scoured every square mile between Nanuit Mall, the shootout scene, and the crash site where the Honda ended up. They were looking for anything that might be related to the crime. Everything from shell casings to tire marks to clothing, you name it. Detectives in charge simultaneously undertook the task of interviewing each of the four suspects they had in custody. Three of the alleged perpetrators could be interrogated normally, but the fourth, a black man who said his name was Solomon, and his last name, which is pronounced either Bounet or Boine, it's hard to know for sure, had been shot by police and was to be taken to an area hospital for treatment. According to the New York Times, the three unarmed defendants were James Hackford, Barbara Edson, and Judith Clark. Judith was identified as the driver of the yellow Honda when it crashed. She also had a pretty extensive criminal history and several prior arrests. Investigators learned that in 1969, Judith had been arrested in Chicago at a demonstration called Days of Rage. The event had been organized to protest the United States' involvement in the Vietnam War and other foreign affairs. It was Judith's affiliation with this protest event that got police interested in probing further into the backgrounds of the remaining suspects. But when they did, investigators quickly uncovered that the rest of the defendants were not at all who they claimed to be. Just a few hours into investigating who their prime suspects, Judith, James, Barbara, and Solomon were, authorities learned that three of them were using false identities. Fingerprint records prove that the woman calling herself Barbara Edson was actually 38-year-old Catherine Boudin. Catherine had been a wanted fugitive for 11 years. CBS News reported that back in 1970, she'd fled the scene of a deadly explosion inside a Greenwich Village townhouse. According to UPI News, the explosion killed three people and severely damaged surrounding homes. Investigators determined the incident was the result of Catherine and her friends' attempts to create bombs. The group Catherine was linked to was known as Weather Underground. According to articles published in the New York Times, the radical movement was made up of members who identified themselves as weathermen. Initially, Weather Underground had been a peaceful, spirited protest movement, but as it evolved and factions split off in the late 70s, the largest sect that remained became controlled by a man named David Gilbert. David was a wanted fugitive from Colorado, who'd faced charges for arson, assault, and other violent crimes. Under his leadership, people like Catherine had become militarized and began to believe that acts of violence were the only way to enact political reform in the United States. You might have guessed it, but the man Nanuit police had in custody for the Brinks robbery who was using the name James Hackford turned out to be David Gilbert. The Times reported that together David and Catherine had a young son together and they were the prominent leaders of what was left of the Weather Underground organization. The last of the suspects who was using a bogus name was the black man who called himself Solomon. He was actually a man named Samuel Brown. Samuel was a longtime criminal who'd served time in prison for larceny and unlawful possession of firearms. He was associated with a spin-off group of the Black Panther Party called the Black Liberation Army. According to reporting by the Washington Post, the Black Liberation Army had a goal of reallocating funds from the United States to fund the creation of a new state in the southern U.S. that would be called Republic of New Africa. The Post reported that a subgroup of the Black Liberation Army called the Family was believed to have carried out a series of bank robberies in and around New York City during the later 1970s and early 80s. After learning their four suspects' backstories, police in New York arrested each of them and charged them with multiple counts of murder and robbery. 
there was little hope they would turn on their conspirators who had escaped law enforcement. But at least investigators could prosecute some of them for the Brinks robbery. Using the suspect's real identities and evidence recovered from the yellow Honda, authorities were able to link the four defendants to six apartments between New York and New Jersey. The New York Times and CBS News reported that in each of these apartments, investigators found stockpiles of weapons, explosives, and blueprints of dozens of New York City police precincts. The FBI determined that all the apartments were either bomb factories or safe houses for wanted terrorists and fugitives associated with both Weather Underground and subgroups like the Black Liberation Army. By November of 1981, federal investigators indicated three more people involved with both organizations were suspected of being in the armored truck heist and shootout. That brought the total number of defendants in the Brinks robbery scheme to seven. The online news blog, Lohud, reported that over time, a man who had successfully eluded law enforcement was identified as the suspected mastermind of the group. This man's name was Jarrell Wayne Williams. The FBI told reporters that evidence obtained during the apartment raids and their overall investigation pointed to Jarrell as the ringleader of the deadly plot. The only problem was, he was nowhere to be found and all the people police had in custody weren't talking or pointing fingers at him. In 1981, Jarrell was the leader of a Black Liberation Army subgroup known as The Family. Informants who worked with law enforcement to track him down said that he'd expressed interest in committing robberies and other acts of violence. Jarrell didn't go by his legal name. Instead, he changed it to Matulu Shakur. That last name may sound familiar. He's actually the stepfather of 90s hip-hop legend Tupac Shakur. Police also learned through various witness statements that Matulu was behind several armored truck robbery attempts in the Northeast United States. It was known to push his followers to become more militant in their efforts to create a black ethnostate in America. In December of 1981, an unrelated bank robbery occurred in Georgia. The perpetrator behind that heist was a guy named Tyrone Rison. According to the New York Times, Tyrone was a member of the family and had planned and carried out robberies under the direction of Matulu Shakur. When Tyrone was picked up for the Georgia bank robbery, he agreed to take a plea deal and become an informant for the feds. In exchange, he got a 12-year prison sentence. With his help, the FBI was able to find out a lot of information about the inner workings of the family and several Black Liberation Army factions. Most importantly, Tyrone spilled the beans about specific robberies the group had orchestrated. When he got his deal finalized, Tyrone sang like a bird and told the authorities all about the crimes he'd helped carry out for Matulu Shakur. Namely, the 1981 Brinks armored truck robbery at Nanuit Mall and the shootout afterwards. The New York Times reported that Tyrone's testimony laid out the hierarchy of the family and explained how the Brinks robbery was supposed to go down. Transcripts state that on the morning of the robbery, Catherine Boudin and David Gilbert have been instructed to drop off their one-year-old son with a babysitter and then go and rent a U-Haul. It was Catherine and David who'd been pulled over in the U-Haul moments before Nyack police officers Waverly Brown and Edward O'Grady were gunned down. After the shooting, David and Catherine had fled in different directions, and Catherine had run away from the crime scene and had been detained by the off-duty corrections officer driving on Route 59. David, Judith Clark, and Samuel Brown ended up in the crashed yellow Honda. Tyrone said the original plan had been to rob the armored truck, kill whoever got in their way, and use the money to continue funding acts of terror. However, shortly after the initial attack on the armored truck guards, the plan had clearly gone off the rails. By September of 1983, 
authorities were able to convict four members of the indicted seven for racketeering, murder, and robbery. According to reporting by the New York Times, David, Judith, and another man associated with the family were sentenced to three consecutive prison terms of 25 years to life. Catherine Boudin's trial took place the following year in 1984. The Washington Post reported that she was represented by private lawyers who were friends of her affluent family. They fought hard to have her case tried separately from any other defendants, but the judge overruled those efforts. Catherine stood trial alongside Samuel Brown, but as it turned out, it wasn't long-lived. Before the case got to the jury, she took a plea deal and admitted to felony murder and robbery. In exchange, she got a reduced sentence of 20 years behind bars. According to multiple news outlets, David Gilbert was convicted at his trial and a judge sentenced him to 75 years to life for three second-degree murder convictions. Samuel Brown went on to face trial and was subsequently convicted. He was sentenced to three consecutive terms of 25 years to life. UPI News reported that throughout his trial, Samuel insisted he was innocent and claimed he'd been tricked into participating in the robbery by Matulo Shakur. He blamed Matulo for roping him into a scheme that involved killing people. After the trials wrapped up, the manhunt for Matulu didn't fade. By February of 1986, the FBI caught up to him and arrested him in Los Angeles, California. And by that point, his criminal enterprise, known as The Family, had dwindled to only a few loyal members. Most everyone else who'd known or supported him had turned on each other or become informants for the government. According to the Associated Press, Matulu and one of his female accomplices went to trial in 1988 and were convicted of racketeering, conspiracy, armed robbery, and murder. And they were sentenced to 60 and 50 years in prison, respectively. Because there are so many characters in different years involved in this crime and aftermath, it's hard to summarize its impact in just one podcast episode. Of the culprits I've detailed for you, many believe that there were even more people who were involved in the Sprinks robbery but just never were caught. Nowadays, authorities are reasonably certain that everyone who was directly involved in the crime that resulted in the three murders is either behind bars or died eluding capture. Joseph Trombino, the Brinks guard who was shot and wounded, ultimately recovered and returned to work approximately two years after the heist. Unfortunately, he died as a victim in the 9-11 terrorist attacks while making a delivery to the World Trade Center basement. Arthur Keenan and Brian Lennon, the Nyack police officers who survived the 1981 shootout, returned to the police force and later retired. Kathy Budin was paroled in 2003 after spending 22 years in prison. According to the New York Post, she took a job as an adjunct professor at Columbia University. She said she'd found a calling to teach students about the issues facing convicts and their families. According to the New York Times, Judith Clark was released from prison in June 2019 after serving 39 years. Everyone else involved in the robbery plot reportedly continues to remain in prison. This includes Matulu Shakur. According to the Associated Press and the website matulushakur.com, a parole board denied a petition for his release in 2016 and again most recently in January 2021. Efforts to grant Matulu and other suspects early release are ongoing, but for loved ones of Peter Page, Edward O'Grady, and Waverly Brown, their mission is to see justice served. Those families are dead set on drowning out the convicted killer's cries for mercy. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. I had one friend, now there's none. I made the
the devil run. Armored is an audio Chuck original, hosted by me, Jake Brennan. Research and writing by Michael Whelan, with writing assistance from executive producer Delia D'Ambra. Editing by Eric Aaron. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? <laughs> <laughs>